Now entering Nerdist.com. It's the Nerdist Writers Panel, and it's hosted by Ben Blecker, where he gets a bunch of writers, and he asks them lots of questions, and it's starting now, so this will be the end of the theme. Welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for braving, braving traffic and weather. Um, you guys, uh, please, another round of applause for Joel Arquios from 826LA. Um, my name is Ben Blacker. I created the Nerdist Writers Panel um, because I wanted to find out how the television that I love is made. And we've done over 300 episodes now, which is insane to me. Um, like, having Norman Lear here, I'm done. Now, now I know how all the TV I love is made. Um, so if there's anyone that you would like to suggest for the panel, let's find out how the TV you love is made. Uh, follow me on Twitter at Ben Blacker or go to writerspanel.tumblr.com and leave a message. And like, that I'm the only one who does those things. So tell me what shows you like, who you want to hear from. Also check the archives. We've had so, so many writers from so, so many shows. Um, I have a little bit of business to take care of before we begin. Um, oh, I should tell you, I have some credentials. Um, I myself am a television writer. Uh, I've written for Supernatural, for the DreamWorks Netflix show Puss in Boots, and as of a couple weeks ago, I started on the new FX series from the Archer people called Cassius and Clay, which is super fun. It'll be on next year. Check it out. Um, it's smart people. Okay, we also have some more of these live panels coming up, which I hope if you are in Los Angeles, you will check out. On the 27th, uh, over at Nerd Melt, over at the Meltdown uh, Theater, we have Jason Rothenberg, who created The 100. Do you know this show? Some of you do. You're all sitcom people. Um, we have writers from Criminal Minds, from iZombie, uh, from Chuck. It should be a fun time. Uh, on the 17th, I don't know if tickets are up for this yet, but they will be soon. We'll have the team behind the new Hulu series, Casual, including Jason Reitman uh, and our old friend Liz Tiglar. And if you are in Boston on November 14th, uh, I'm doing an evening with writer, author, comic book writer, uh, Joe Hill, who is a terrific writer, and you should check out his stuff. You can find out about all of that at writerspanel.tumblr.com. Uh, these guys have some stuff to plug, but we'll let them do it. By round of applause, how many of you are listeners to the Nerdist Writers Panel already? Okay. Tepid. By, by a similar clapping method, for how many of you is this your first experience with the Nerdist Writers Panel? Okay. Very interesting. Uh, here's how we do it. I have a few questions. I have things that I like to kind of kick off, and we'll talk to these guys who have tons of experience, and we'll find out some of you know, the stuff they know and, and how they make the TV that they make. Um, but then I want to make sure we have time for questions from you. Are you going to have questions? Yes? <laughs> okay, some of you will. Good, good answer. Um, what I want you to do is think of your question now. Think of a few, because maybe something will get covered. <laughs> think of your question now. Distill it to one sentence. Make sure it begins with a W or an H, not with an I. Uh, and what I'm going to do is I'll, I'll walk around with the wireless mic and so you can ask your own question so it's picked up for the podcast, which will be released tomorrow. But for now, you know, I was going to run down a list of credits for these guys, but we don't really need to do that. So please, 
I think you, you know why we're here. I know it's why I'm here. Please give an enormous round of applause to all of our guests, Steve Levitan, Phil Rosenthal, and Norman Lear. Thank you, gentlemen. Anywhere you like. Keep clapping till they sit down. I'm exhausted. <laughs> oh. Steve Levitan, everybody, had to sit through the Emmys yesterday. <laughs> Norman Thanks, and I Phil. want to know what that's like. <laughs> Look, you know what? I wasn't going to ask this, but you've been to the Emmys a number of times. Your uh, Modern Family is a longtime winner. You've been for other shows as well. Uh, I'm going to ask this to all of you guys. This came up on a recent panel, and I'm sorry to get so deep so fast. Do the Emmys matter? Do you care? <laughs> I cared with all my heart. <laughs> Did you? Yeah. I, I wept when I didn't win. Here's the thing. I, I'm thinking about it now and weeping now. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't know that... I think... In front of the crowd, everybody seems to give a big shit. <laughs> but I, I don't know that they do care that much. Do that's, you guys that's care? What I, I, I love winning. I mean, it was, I don't mean I didn't, but it wasn't, it didn't change anything. Right. Tell me if you relate to this. You get nominated for an Emmy, and two things happen almost simultaneously. Oh, boy, and oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. Why? Oh, no. Because you realize you may have to make a speech. You may have to get up in front of however many millions of people for the first time, lights on you. Be funny, funny boy. <laughs> terrifying, terrifying. So you start to think, what the hell am I going to say? So you think of what to say, and then you land on something. I got it, I got it. Oh, it's good. And now you're dead. Why? Because you thought of the thing you want to say, and now you care about it. <laughs> and then you get there, and here's what happens most of the time, unless you're Steve Levitan. <laughs> you get there, and you sit through a whole fakakta show, and they say, and here's your category. Okay, here it is, here it is. Are you ready? You remember what you're going to say? Yes, I remember what I'm going to say. Okay, don't forget this bit. This goes before this bit. This one. Okay, don't forget this. Okay, we're ready. And the winner is not you. <laughs> so I call it the worst of both worlds. I'd like to spend the rest of tonight complaining about my Emmy nomination. <laughs> but let, let me ask you. you uh, yeah, I'll, I'll go. Please, I have seniority. No, please speak. <laughs> All right. Uh, let me ask you, Steve. Sitting there for what the the ninth time in a row? What was it? Uh, this was our sixth. Okay. And, you know, you've won a number of times. Mm -hmm. does the feel, does the, do you feel like, oh, I hope someone else gets it. I hope a new kid gets it. It would be nice to have it again. Like, what is the feeling? Because you're sitting with your writers and performers, presumably. Okay. I, I didn't think we had a prayer last mm -hmm. night. I really, and I mean that genuinely. And I was very, very happy when Veep won. Mm -hmm. Really. 
And I, I know that maybe that people won't believe that, but it's true. No, I, and I will vouch for you here because I know several of the Modern Family writers who all said to me, we know we're not going to win. Yeah. We think it's going to go to Transparent. Well, I, but I then Veep won, I which everybody I thought it was going to be Veep, and I was actually quite happy that it was Veep because uh, it was, you know, it's a genuine, you know, it's a comedy. It's, got, it's yeah. funny. It's smart. They had a really good year. They're great people, funny cast. So, uh, you know, it's, I mean, look at, I can't I'll never complain about the Emmys. Uh, our cup runneth over. So we, uh, it, it's, it is, it is, it, the, the experience of being there, it is a very strange thing, especially, you know, the first time. And when they do call your name, the first time, it, it, I, I equate it to you're sitting on, a, on an airplane and all of a sudden, the seat drops out of the airplane suddenly, and they say, give a speech. And, and that's the feeling, like, oh, my God, you got it you know, right there, right now. And it, your adrenaline is running and everything. So it's a, it is a terrifying experience. But um, for me, personally, it's a very meaningful award, unlike some of the other awards, <laughs> uh, because it is from your... Mm-hmm. And right. so I, I do think it's it, that you know that's that's incredibly All right. well. I apologize. I, I apologize for beginning with a potential landmine. This is I agree about the importance of the awards. And when I said that people don't give a shit, it was to use the word. <laughs> <laughs> you, you you broke hearts with it. It was perfect. He, he is filthy. By the way, you should. Not <laughs> I've been warned. Yeah. Um, I want to start with an easy question for you, if you can uh, dig back into your memories, uh, because our, our podcast does seek to be instructive as well as entertaining. Uh, can you remember, and Norman, we'll start with you. I feel weird calling you Norman. I'm going to call you Mr. Lear. Uh, <laughs> no, I feel, I feel gross. Um, <laughs> do you remember the first writing that you got paid for? Oh, I remember very well the first writing thing I got paid for. What was it? Uh, Ed Simmons and I were selling things door to door. That's what we did during the day. He wanted to write. I, I hadn't thought about being a comedy writer. I wanted to be a press agent. And one night, uh, we, uh, the, our wives, we had little. We each had a little kid. We were broke. Our wives went to the movies. Uh, we were taking care of the kids. They came home at ten fifteen or something. We had written. He asked me to write with him. We had written a parody. I'm trying to remember the song, because we all know the song, but a parody. And uh, I said, well, we, let's go out and see if we can sell it. Because there were nightclubs, uh, a lot of them. Eddie Foy had a nightclub in the valley, and there was one on La Brea and Beverly. Uh, I'll remember the name of it in a moment. And anyway, we went there, and we sold the first thing we'd written in the first door we entered for 40 bucks. <laughs> now, $20 a week was about a third of what I made in a week. <laughs> so we did, we, we did very well. We started to write every night. We got a room, a, a, a room above a delicatessen at Kenmore and Beverly <laughs> for six bucks a month. That's and great. we started writing every evening. Awesome. And so, so you guys were suddenly committed to writing these comedy pieces. How did that start to take shape as more narrative, dramatic pieces? We sold a piece. I, reading Variety one day, I read that uh, uh, Danny Thomas was with the William Morris office. The day I read it, 
he was, the next day he was going to appear at Ciro's on the strip. And uh, I had an idea for the kind of routines he did. Danny Thomas did these, was a raconteur, not a comic, a raconteur. He told long stories. And he was, anyway, uh, we, we wrote this thing. I called his secretary about 12.30 in the afternoon. I called the William Morris office and hoping to God he was at lunch, and he was. And as fast as I could talk, I said, uh, this is my name, and uh, we've been, I, I've been out here interviewing Mr. Thomas uh, for the New York Times. I'm at the airport. Oh, they're calling my plane. I've got two <laughs> questions. I've got to ask him right away. She gave me the number, and I called. <laughs> He was, he picked up the phone, he was sitting with, I remember the name of his accompanist, it was Wally Pop. And uh, he was sitting with Wally Pop and he was going to appear the next night. He hoped he could find something in his trunk that he felt they didn't know. Uh, it had to be short. <laughs> I said, you're talking about everything, we, you, I, that's why I want to see you. And uh, he said, he was, he, he was fascinated with how I got this number. <laughs> so that that was reason enough for him to say, "All right, well, if you get over here, and uh, well, I'll take a look at it." I said, <laughs> uh, you, "It's it's one o'clock or something." I said, "Well, we'll be there at five. And he said, uh, "You said you're calling from Hollywood. I'm in Beverly Hills. Get over here right away. You'll be here in twenty minutes." But we hadn't written this thing yet. <laughs> Anyway, we showed up at five or four or whatever, and uh, he did it the next night. And the following morning, I got a call from an agent named David Suskind, who had a job for us in New York if we could be there in two days on the Jack Haley Ford Star Review. It's all in my book. <laughs> Plug the book. What's the name of the book? The name of the book is even even the even this sitting here with Steve and Phil and Ben, my new friend, uh, even this I get to experience. Right. I think about that. Yeah. I mean, I, this is the first time in my life I have ever sat on this stage with you guys. In my entire life. <laughs> we'll do it again next week. Same time. <laughs> uh, Phil, do you remember the first piece of writing you got paid for? I do. I wasn't a writer when I started. I, I, you know, when you're a kid, you don't know that there's writing and directing and producing. I, I would watch The Honeymooners and, and, say, and say, oh, Art Carney's funny. I want to do that. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to be funny. That's all. And, and uh, so how do you do that in school without getting thrown out of class? So you, go, you go into high school plays and then the study theater in college and you learn all the other disciplines. But I, I thought, you know, I should be an actor I'm not a great actor. I'm, I'm okay, but I just wanted to be funny any way I could. And I was struggling in New York for years, and I had maybe $150 in the bank. And a friend of mine came over to my house. He was already a writer, and he said, let's write a screenplay together. He brought a blue and metal box called a word processor. <laughs> yes, 1987. And we wrote a screenplay and we sold that screenplay to HBO for $70,000. 
that's a problem with the drop the mic bit. You now need a new mic. No. Norman, I, I need an intern. <laughs> Can I see your resume? <laughs> Phil. That's how I roll. How? <laughs> He's so big, Norman Lear is his intern. <laughs> he picks up my shit, I give him a little tip now. Phil, but get yourself something nice. Let me, let me follow There's, up on uh, this. Um, how did you know what you were doing, the two of you? When you were writing this, this screenplay that eventually sold. You know how they say that people uh, who play golf for the first time, they have a good game? <laughs> it's luck. And then you're sucked into this horrible game for the rest of your life because you had that one good game? That's my story. <laughs> <laughs> what, what was the subject of this movie? We wrote about a guy who lived up the street from us. We were both from the same little town in Rockland County, New York, called New City. And there was a man who lived up the street with a funny name. We thought it was funny. His name was Millard Shulman. And to the point where my friend and I called each other Millard. Right? <laughs> Stupid. And we thought, what if that guy was a suburban detective? And we wrote it for Alan Arkin. He was our favorite actor. Right? So we write it for him and we sell it. And what we don't realize is Alan Arkin, they told us, doesn't open a movie in 1988, so we couldn't, we couldn't get it made. But they said, there is somebody who would like to meet with you who is interested in the script, Jerry Lewis. So I had lunch with Jerry Lewis. It was crazy. And really, Surprise. Yeah, but you have, I mean, you got to talk to Norman about Jerry. He has a couple of amazing Jerry Lewis stories. I just... Uh, we haven't heard how Steve yes, filled his We'll get to him. <laughs> no, no. I'd really rather hear you. <laughs> Wait, I want to, before we ask for your Jerry Lewis story. Yeah. So, did you have to sit here and pitch this movie to Jerry Lewis? Yes. How do you do that? It was insane. <laughs> I, I, well, let's come back to it. And okay. let that, because it's so off the subject now that you're talking about what, what did you first get paid for, okay. Steve? I'll do his job for <laughs> <Thank> you. <laughs> do, listen, while we're on the subject yeah. of Phil Rosenthal, uh, your show premieres this coming Sunday. Monday. Monday, yeah, on PBS. PBS! Tell the people about it. It's a food and travel show called I'll Have What Phil's Having. <laughs> this is true. And, and it's I, great. And I was cast as Phil. <laughs> yes. There's some competition. Yes. <laughs> it is. Look, shut up, I'll do it. It is a great show. Thank uh, you. Phil somehow suckered PBS or someone into getting them to send him to other countries to eat their food <laughs> and meet the people. Uh, and you would not think, uh, I was lucky enough to see an episode, and you would not think that it would be moving and heartfelt. Uh, you would think it would be charming and funny, uh, and it is all of these things. So check it out on PBS on Monday. You're very nice, Ben. Thank you. Could you be my publicist? <laughs> Try um, no, I love, I love doing it. It was a lifelong passion. And it, uh, you know, I feel like my whole life has built to this thing that I love. Mm -hmm. It has everything I love. Food, family, friends, laughs, travel. That's, I've distilled all of life in my years. Have you done that yet? <laughs> I've, done, I've done it with you. Yes. I was in your show. Absolutely. Yeah. We do an L.A. episode. And, and we went to Langer's together in the episode. Yeah. 
Yeah. And we were just in Milan together. Yes. Also eating. Wherever Phil goes, you want to be with him, especially as he walks into restaurants. <laughs> Nobody. Uh, what the hell? What's the word for you? <laughs> Eats as much? Huh? Nobody loves food or understands it or... There's a deep connection. Well, that, by the God. way, connection is the perfect word. It's how we connect. Mm-hmm. I think we, we, our social lives are around food. It always has been that. And, and for me, for love of food and, and enjoying that time together over the meal is, is essential to life. And then when you add a sense of humor to it, well, now we're connecting. And especially you go to other cultures, all you want is a laugh from these people <laughs> and, to, and for them to, to make you laugh. And then now you have the deepest connection possible. And with Phil, you're laughing with a full mouth. (laughs) It is disgusting. I've seen him. (laughs) All right. So check it out uh, on Monday. Thank you. Steve. Uh, My my first uh, professional writing job was, um, I feel like I don't even need to say this. Everyone, of course, knows me as the morning anchorman on Good Morning Wisconsin. Yes. (laughs) Of course, on WKOW-TV in Madison, Wisconsin, they named their station after a cow. Um, but they, um, yeah, so I was, a, I was, a, I was a, a newsman for, yeah, yeah, I was a newsman for two years uh, after school, and uh, I was, I wanted to do the feature reporting because it was a chance to be creative. And in, Did you study journalism in school? I, I sort of veered into it, and, and for all the wrong reasons. By the way, I did it for all the wrong reasons, which was, I, I thought it would be cool to be on TV. <laughs> and you realize now, looking back, looking across the landscape right now, that that's the reason that most journalists are on television. They wanted to be on TV. That's their, their, their commitment to the truth is that they want to be on TV. Um, <laughs> But I, I uh, got, got out of that. Uh, I, what, it, what happened was I was assigned, rather than to the, to the feature reporting, to um, courts and crime. And I was actually covering murder trials and, and you know, shootings and, you know, very serious things and always fighting the urge to put a little joke in it. <laughs> and, uh, and I would get talked to all the time about it. Having a little too much of a something in it. So I realized that wasn't for me. I, I did a quick stint in Chicago at, at, an, at ad, ad agencies, um, made it out to L.A., long story short, got a chance to pitch on the show Wings uh, a thousand years ago, and, uh, and that was the first script I ever sold. And uh, off I went. Were you copywriting at the ad agency? Yes, I was. So that must have been a great lesson just in... The pace of TV. I mean, you're you're turning stuff around quickly. Aren't no, you? nothing is better than the pace of journalism, which is sure. not. And so, it, what was interesting is, I mean, I, I was used to, you know, being sent to a scene of a something terrible, something big, whatever, at ten minutes to six, having to assess the situation, get some interviews, formulate it, edit it in some cases, edit a, a, some something and be able to go live with it at 6.02. Uh, so when I got into television and got into writing, I, what I really saw very quickly was, you know, hey, we, we're going to need this script next Wednesday, 
and you would see a room full of people panic. And I'm like, next Wednesday, I can have it tomorrow. And it was really not because I was like, so, you know, so I, just, I just was so used to the, the, the pace of just you know, having to crank it out it, that it didn't, it didn't As, frighten me. And let me you ask, should be on TV. It's true. I mean, look at you. I oh, trust him. Yeah. This is a handsome person. Shouldn't he be on TV? It's such a, you should have my thing. Isn't he on TV? Isn't that where I know him from? <laughs> I mean, this is a good-looking... <laughs> let, me, let me follow up just on one thing. Uh, Steve, so you got the opportunity to pitch on Wings. Had you written some spec things yes. before then? So you kind of knew the nuts and bolts. You knew what a script is supposed to look like. Look like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What did you write? Do you remember what specs? The specs. Uh, at the time, the first one I ever wrote was a moonlighting, um, uh, which was just the first thing I ever tried. Um, I ran into Bruce Willis at a restaurant. I mean, I don't run into people like that, but I, I, someone introduced us, and I told him this story, and he was surprisingly, well, what's, what, what was it about? I'm like, well, yeah. That never happened. Yeah, it was very nice. It was actually quite... So he's open to pitches. <laughs> yeah, apparently so. Uh, this always works, by the way. <laughs> In fact, Norman, you can talk to him about it. I would suggest you go up to Bruce Willis at a restaurant and pitch. Um, But, uh, uh, and then uh, it was a, you know, Wonder Years, a Cheers, uh, and a show called Sledgehammer. Yeah, yeah. Sledgehammer? Sledgehammer. Yeah. And so it was a weird combination of things, but yeah, that was... But all all in the comedy vein, and you knew that's where you wanted to be. Yes. Yeah. Um, I want to sort of ask... uh, a bit of a heady question to you guys. I want to talk about comedy. I'm out. <laughs> You're still all in. Um, again, starting here with Mr. Lear, um, tell me about what makes you laugh and where do we see that represented in your work? What makes me laugh and where do you see it in my work? What do you any, find? Any, Any time you have laughed <laughs> at anything I've been associated with, you've seen it in my work. I don't know how to ex- mm-hmm. explain it. Drop the mic. Uh, is there? <laughs> yeah, I, I do. Uh, yeah. Is there even even growing up? Was there a kind of comedy that you responded to more than other kinds of comedy? Were you a voracious? I re- uh, I responded of it? to the things that are true to human nature. Mm-hmm. I don't think. Uh, you have to the foolishness of the human condition appeals to me mm-hmm. and uh, you don't have to invent anything when you're dealing with the foolishness because it's everywhere, it's in everything and what these guys are responsible for in very recent years indicates that every step of the way mm-hmm. just a family you know, and the way they get through their day is following them on a regular basis what does modern family do? I mean, it's so real and so funny. I mean, we're, we're talking, the three of you, we're talking about family sitcoms that explored very current events in many ways. I mean, they're, there's not really a question here. I'm going to work it out. <laughs> Give me a minute. Uh, we're, we're looking at, you know, shows that have something to say, whether it's about comedy, whether it's about family, but it's couched in comedy. It's couched in something that goes down very easily and obviously has led to wild success. Can I jump in? I wish okay. you would. <laughs> Nobody 
Oh. Norman has pioneered this. I mean, let's just face it. Nobody took a bigger chance. Nobody changed the landscape more than Norman did with All in the Family. I mean, it's, you, you, look at, you look at that show today, and it's a weird thing that, that it was made then, and it probably, for some reason, people feel like it can't be quite made today. It said so much at a time that, where, it was so, where so many things were not talked about, and it, made, it brought it to the forefront. And, it, and you think, you know, by the way, this is a strange transition, but it actually works. You talk about what's going on in the world today and what is on every, you know, a subject, for example, a, one subject that's on many people's minds. And I happen to bring something, and this, is not, this has not been set up, but I brought this tonight because I'm moving and I'm, and I'm going through my old things, and I, uh, I found this in my drawer, which is something I've been saving for many years that I got, uh, and I brought it tonight for Norman to sign, which he did for me backstage. And um, on this moment, so this, as as many people know, or if you if you saw this episode, it's I mean it's an iconic just from this moment. It's so iconic. It says so much. It's so applicable today. It's it's um, now Norman very graciously said, uh, "I am Sammy to Steve Levitan's Archie." Norman. <laughs> Um, but, you know, nobody, I mean, he, he changed the face of television, frankly. And, you know, we're all just uh, riding his coattails. But, but let me ask you. Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, I would like a moment for rebuttal. <laughs> I, I didn't hear that. I'm sorry. Not important. Listen. What I loved most and what he's almost underrated for. Yes, he changed the face of television. Yes, he was the bravest person ever to write a sitcom. Yes, he dealt with all these issues. You wouldn't have known about it. You wouldn't have remembered it. You wouldn't have been able to take that medicine if the relationships and the characters were not the best ever. Right? The, the, way, Archie, the way Archie would mime killing himself while Edith spoke. <laughs> Right? The way Edith spoke. <laughs> the way Archie said to Meathead, what are you doing putting on a sock and a shoe? It's sock, sock, shoe, shoe. <laughs> These are universal issues. <laughs> and you wouldn't get. Well, how about, how about, I think about what you just said, and I think about the, the gift of laughter. And the sock and a shoe routine, I, 30 times a year, somebody, some stranger, will mention the sock and a shoe routine. Now, we walked into a, a, a run-through. We started on Tuesday, on Wednesday morning. On Friday afternoon, we walked into a run-through. I and the four or five other writers on the show, and we hadn't written a sock and a shoe, a sock and a shoe. They found that in rehearsal. And imagine walking into your own rehearsal and being and your gifted. your job is done. And, and being gifted with that routine. That's awesome. It's, but you've run into that, or, or if you've been off your Never set. Never happened to me. 
Not like that. I mean, please come up with that somebody. Oh my God, they were so gifted, so gifted. Yeah. But if, if it was, if it weren't, if it hadn't been funny, that's the thing, and that's the mistake you see many, many shows make where they're very preachy. They have a message, and the message comes first, and the laughs always have to come first, because if the laughs aren't there, then people just. Why don't you tell off. some of your Emmy friends last night? <laughs> Go on, Phil. <laughs> <laughs> Phil, do you want your, your new PBS show to be nominated next year? <laughs> I don't care. I get to go and eat. Uh, Norman, I want, I want to sort of dig I'm, in. I'm taking a couple of hearing aids out. My God, that's better. Is it? For me, yeah. Could I borrow one? Yeah. I, I don't have any trouble hearing anything. I hear the slightest sound, but I have trouble with uh, things sounding mushy. I missed a number of words, individual words. I can promise you, you missed nothing. <laughs> and he'll tell you again later. Yeah. You got uh, a pocket? Put these in a pocket. You haven't got a pocket. Who's got a pocket on their shirt? That's what I want is your ear schmutz in my pocket. <laughs> I, I think there should be more pockets on shirts. That's why I'm here. I want more pockets on shirts. You have my vote. Thanks, guys. Oh, you're already. Give me, I'll take your ears. No, I put it in my mouth. You're too late. And what are we One, one, one pocket? Only one? <laughs> what do you want? A one pocket among That's four of us. Uh, Norman, can you, I, I really want to dig deep on the creation of some of these shows. Can you take us inside the writer's room of, say, All in the Family? You know, you talk about the finding stuff in rehearsal, finding stuff on stage, finding stuff with the actors. But what was it like when you were sitting with the writers inventing stories? What, what was you the know, process? It, interesting enough, I have... Uh, well, this is what, the way we used to... We, I don't know how you guys work, but we had a microphone uh, in the middle of a uh, conference table. And uh, when we started talking seriously, when we told the mic, we were now into uh, somebody... 30 feet or 80 feet away started to type what we were saying. They weren't in the room so with you. They weren't in the room. So when... Did you not want them in the room with you? Uh, I don't remember whether I did or I didn't. This is the way we did it. This is the way we started. Why? I don't remember. We, we have a microphone in our room, but it goes to Rupert Murdoch's office. <laughs> <laughs> so in any event, when, the, when we'd been talking for an hour and a half or whatever the hell, when the guys were leaving, there was 30 pages waiting for them, and, and the rest was coming. Uh, but it contained the gut, if not every word, but the guts of what we, we were saying for all that time. And uh, then among the four or five or six, they, one or two of them went off to write the draft of the script from those notes. So that's, that's the way... I just remember... That's not going to work. <laughs> How did, do you guys do it differently? I mean, you don't... Yeah. You have somebody in the room writing right. it. Yeah, and then we're Make, breaking it down to beats, and we're looking at outlines on the, now on a board, and uh-huh. uh, cards everywhere, and really tr- breaking it down and probably but, well, overthinking but, but it. But that's after you've had... You've decided what, a, what story... You're yeah, but uh, yeah, we're, we'll be talking around a story for days, um, some more than days sometimes, and uh, looking for those beats. Uh-huh. And, then, uh, and then it gets very, very detailed before we 
you know, send people Before out. Before somebody goes out. Yeah. But, it, you know, uh, it, the, di- the difference was, and this is where your two shows were different than ours, where yours are longer acts, like a play, almost like yeah. a... Well, we, I didn't play. do anything that wasn't before a live audience. Yeah, but it was long scenes and dialogue, so yes, that it was for less... for that reason. And, and, and I'm, this is not... I mean, yeah, it less beats going on, sitting in there, get mining every moment out of a, out of a beat. And ours is the, sometimes maybe too much, but moving along, right. many different stories interweaving. So it gets, so you need that, we need that um, level of uh, following it along just so we can keep track. It's, uh, it's an point. interesting distinction. I mean, to watch those multi-camera shows, first of all, but also, you know, you look at those shows between 72 and 78 or even or the early 80s, the feel was different and it felt like you got to live in the world a little bit and live with the characters, and there were silences. Was this something, I mean, was it because of the theater the, tradition? I, the, the first distance, a difference is a, was a very uh, almost physical difference. We, they, they actors were, the actors were performing in front of a live audience, 25 feet away from them, sat the bleachers for 240 to 50 people. And uh, the actor executing the line and get, getting a laugh did something while the laugh continued and often did something that made the laugh bigger. And that's why you saw the giant close-ups too because that also, the audience and the actors were working together uh, which is, you know, theater. The other way of working is uh, you know, it's cinematic and it's film. It's an it's an entire a different experience, and God knows both are great. Can I ask? I want to ask all of you because you've all worked in these multicam sitcoms. When you, the few I've worked on or visited recently, they're shooting the thing, and then you get this huddle of writers going. They're not laughing. They're not laughing. Or they've heard this joke already. Or how do we make this funnier? Was that the experience for you guys, or is this something that developed as television became more money, more competitive, more what, more everything? Uh, what, was did this happen on on your multicam? No, uh, we shows? we taped two shows every episode. We taped twice. We had an audience at, at five o'clock in the afternoon. We taped. We were finished before six o'clock. We had dinner and 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 edited or or talked about what changes we wanted to make in the, for the second show. We had another audience at 8 o'clock and taped it again. Then we used the best of the two uh, tapes. But, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But you, and you taped kind of straight through. You didn't pause between scenes. It was written like a one-act play. I think, I think you can tell. I think it makes a difference. What was the experience on Raymond? Uh, I was a student of theater. And before that, I was a student of Norman Lear's work. And so everything that he just said... (laughs) Later, Norman. Everything he just said, I tried to emulate. Everything. Not the two shows. Uh, We would do three takes in front of the audience. We found that was enough, and we would huddle in between takes if something didn't work, or we thought that we could do better on take two, or just change it up for fun. 
or try to make the other actors laugh. Uh, Ray and Brad like to do that. Uh, the height of unprofessionalism, by the way. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, we call it stacking the gag reel. <laughs> and, and we loved it. it. It provided a sense of fun, which you must have, because God knows, if you've ever been to a TV taping, the fun runs out at a certain hour. <laughs> I, and I wanted to ask you about this as well, uh, Phil. The Raymond Room was sort of a, a notoriously happy place. You know why? The food. <laughs> the food. That, Dom, not, don't even don't laugh. <laughs> the food is the most important. Uh, look, you get a show, right? You're, now, you're, now you're the boss. So, so you go from riding alone in a room, a little schmuck in a room, to hoping somebody at CBS will let you film the pilot, Two, the pilot's going. Two, the show is picked up. Now you're boss, 150 people, multi-million dollar thing. How are you going to run this show? I don't know. I don't know. I was alone. I was schmuck in the room. Now you're in. You're the boss. So how are you going to be? That's actually a choice you have to make. I'd work for dictators that weren't so nice. Um, and and I and and I, I work for, you know, people who had no idea what to what to what to say or do, you know, indecisive, that's horrible. You know, you're there till three in the morning, then you hate the person. And, and so I thought, what, how am I going to be? What's the demeanor? How about you just be nice? Because I, did, I didn't know any, look at me, I'm very physically imposing, right? So I, the other way wasn't going to work. I'm not Steve Levitan. So, so, so be nice, be nice, hopefully People get a living wage. And then the other way I found that you could create a family offstage is by providing nice food. I'm 100% serious. How many potential showrunners do we have out here? <laughs> Craft service is the most important thing in your life. <laughs> food is love. Food is love. If you go to the craft service table and you have junk on the craft service table, we go and grab potato chips and it stinks, and then we go on with our day and we hate this place. But... If you and I, we never met before, we go to the craft service table, all of a sudden there's deli flown in from New York. Whoa, did you, what, huh? Did you taste this? Did I taste, yeah, right well, away. Yes, Russ and Daughters. Yes, beautiful. <laughs> right away we're talking, and it's about something nice. Right away, connection. Nice. <laughs> what was the question? I think I had asked Steve something. Okay. <laughs> First of all, let me just say what a pleasure it is to be here with this old Jew and Norman. <laughs> Norman is the youngest person I know. Yes. Um, well, I take uh, that as a compliment. Steve, tell me, so you, you came up on, you know, you did Larry Sanders, right? Uh, which was not a, a multicam. I did uh, Wings... Right. Uh, wrote some scripts for Frasier, Larry Sanders, ran back to Frasier, <laughs> just shoot me, failure, 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 modern family. But so Just Shoot Me was the first uh, show of your own that you created. Yeah. So what did you take from these shows that you had worked on before to create a, a good working environment? Um... You know, I think, you, I think it's pretty universal. You, 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 you cherry-pick the things. I'll do this. I'll mm -hmm. think. So what was really great was I learned, I, I, I got very lucky in, in Wings. And so Wings came from the guys that had worked on Cheers 
then it went back to Taxi, they went back to Mary Tyler Moore. Uh, so there was a system that was long and, and beyond that. It, there was a system that had worked and had been honed through the years. So I got to experience that system. And then, uh, so I, hap- I got so lucky that I didn't come up in a dysfunctional environment, which so many mm-hmm. comedy writers do, so they don't get a chance to experience a show well run. I did. And then I took from that all the things that I enjoyed about that, and then, you know, as through the years, you, you tweak. You didn't have one bad, like, bad boss? Did you not hear that I worked on Larry Sanders? <laughs> oh. Can, please continue. Um, no, no, I mean, it wasn't. That was just a, that was a, that was a, uh, a tricky show. Uh, brilliant, brilliant people. Brilliant show. A tricky, tricky environment. Who was your worst boss? I never had a boss. Drop the mic. Drop the mic. How? <laughs> Drop the mic. How did you? Drop the mic. <laughs> How did you make yourself a great boss, Norman? It's. It, I don't know whether. I don't think I ever sat down and decided to do this. I just never. I never took a job. I was offered a job. To, you know, the networks wanted me to, to come in for three years or five years or whatever. The, I just stayed away from jobs and did my thing. And then, I would, this is the smartest thing I ever did. We, were, we had a couple of shows on the air. Bud Yorkin and I were partners. We were neither of us businessmen. I was aware that there were guys who had three, four shows in other years, earlier years, but they never owned them. They did them for a lot of years. They did very well, but they didn't own them. Something about that seemed unfair. And uh, I was smart enough to know a great businessman and, and to understand that this guy, Jerry Parencho, was a great businessman. He was our agent. And, uh, and finally coaxed him. It took a year to coax him to come with us. And he built the company. We put on the shows. We sold the shows. But he made it a company. And uh, I've been forever grateful to him, and, and we've been great partners. Do you remember your ratings? On, all like all, you want to get depressed? Yeah, like on All in the Family or, or, yeah. or you know. Like, here's the, here is the, uh, better than the ratings. I've been trying to find this because I read it once. Uh, but the New York Times, in some article... Uh, said that, that uh, at certain times during when all the family was on the air in New York, the water table changed. When people got up to take a leak, <laughs> the water table changed. The com- when the com- commercials hit. I, it might have been funnier had I said when the commercials hit. I got then, you. Yeah. I understand. So, so next time, if you'll remind me, I'll do, I'll, I'll do it that way. When Sofia Vergara comes on, something happens. <laughs> but we did have a 50 share. <laughs> now, you're Steve, a, But you know, only three networks. Come on. It's funny. There were only three networks. Yeah, there were yeah. only three networks, sure. But, but I mean, still, a Modern 50 Family share. is a huge hit. Yes. Raymond was a huge yes. hit. Yes, we stink. <laughs> What can we expect? I mean, and Norman, you haven't it's stopped going down. developing it's not shows. Going up. Right, it's, it's not only going, going down, right? I'm I've sorry, had, didn't. I've had show. I had a show years ago on the air that um, 
I wish I knew the numbers exactly, but it would be, it, I think it, it got canceled at, at the end of its first year. And I'm, I'm fairly certain, I, I, oh, I wish I could back this up. It would be maybe the number one show on television right now. I mean, you know, just the, that was in, you know, the early 2000s or something. It's just the landscape has changed. Yeah, if you get a tune, so you stay on. Much. It's true. Um, I, want to, I want to talk about something happier for a moment. Um, Norman, we look at your shows, and there's a kind of magic that happens when everything comes together. And somehow you are able to harness that again and again and again. Uh, can we talk about casting for a moment? Can we talk about finding the right actors for the right part? And I would open this up to you fellows as well. Uh, but, but tell us about some of the, the casting stories. It's, uh, there's a kind of magic that can take place. I was re- Let's take All in the Family. Those are the best-known characters, I guess. Uh, I was responsible for the decision to hire each of those four people for the roles they played. But there's no way I or anybody else could have been responsible for the chemistry that developed quickly between each of them in every direction whether it was Edith with Archie or Edith with Gloria or Gloria with Mike or in every direction, the chemistry just blossomed. I mean, erupted. No, I, I wasn't responsible for that. I just hired four great people. Uh, so there is a kind of magic and, and you know, the gift of the gods. That, yeah, it's, yeah it, you've all had it, too. Yeah, yes, we've all had it. It's crazy. On Modern Family, and for the pilot, we, you know, we cast uh, ten, ten uh, actors, and then you know the baby. Baby's basically a prop at that point. <laughs> um, but I, our casting director Jeff Greenberg uh, cast or saw, I believe, fourteen hundred people for those ten roles, of which we saw. Chris Lloyd and I saw maybe three to four hundred of them. Um, it is it is a miracle, like for us, like it is just a, a lucky miracle. I can't tell you the number of ways we almost screwed up, that we maybe even wanted to make a bad decision, or we almost gave up on trying to make a good decision and and, and caving on something. And uh, it, you know, I, I I I'm amazed. I mean, when Mitch and Cam, for example, we cast Jesse Tyler Ferguson very early in the process, and then we needed to find his cam. And here we were, Chris Lloyd and I, two straight guys, and we would, you know, these perfectly good actors would come in, and, and like Eric Stone Street comes in and gives a great performance, and we're like, I don't know, I just don't think they would be good together. You know? I don't see him with him. You know, I don't know if he would, if he would be attracted to him, and, you know, or whatever it was. And, and, and then you... you, you Give into it. You you go. You know. The, you, he's he's a, he's the best actor that that gave that 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 gave that performance. Let's go with it. And then all of a sudden, on on in the pilot, it's just this this thing you never expected. And for us in this day and age to have cast ten actors, and there for there never to have been even a a moment's discussion about recasting, is pretty remarkable today. So it just, it's, and that's pure luck. Uh, ABC did me a great, in, 
in terms of gas, he did me a great favor. They didn't know they were doing. I didn't know it was as much a fa I didn't know it was a favor at all. By turning down, I made the pilot with uh, Carol O'Connor and Gene Stapleton, two other young people, in 1968. And uh, do you remember 1968? <laughs> and uh, they turned it down. They laughed, they loved it. They, did. I made it a, they had the right to cause me to make it a second time before they lost it or put it on. They chose the former. I had to make it again. I had two young people in it. They were not uh, uh, Reiner and, and uh, Struthers. They didn't pick it up again. When CBS called and said, I said, I'm not going to make another pilot. And it, by the way, it was the same script. I didn't change a word of the script. <laughs> and uh, I said, I'm not going to make another pilot. No, no. Six on the air. Then I found Rob and Sally. So, I mean, talk about luck. And that's the really remarkable thing. Sorry to jump in, but it's the really remarkable thing that you didn't change a word and how much it elevated, how much different it was. And that's the thing, because so, I know that when I'm casting, I can't help it. I sit there, and when a scene isn't working, I'm instantly rewriting it in my head. Okay, I could change that line, and line, line. And then you've, you've, you've rewritten the whole scene in your head, and then somebody walks in and makes it work. And, and that's a remarkable moment. And you went, okay, that, yeah. It's just, that's what it was supposed to be. Phil, how did you pull together this ensemble for Raymond? I'm sure this is well-trod, but I'm, I'm always curious to hear. Uh, Ray, I didn't have a choice. <laughs> <laughs> I did get a call, though, during casting that, uh, from uh, Scott Bale. He said, I, I understand you're casting a show called Everybody Loves Raymond. I said, yes. He said, I'm interested in the part of Raymond. <laughs> And I told Ray, you better be good because I have Scott Bayo. Scott Bayo thought everybody loves me. So. Uh, uh, Peter Boyle was a suggestion of Les Moonveses. He, he said, yeah. He goes, what about him for the father? I'm like, well, I don't think you say no to Peter Boyle. So that was easy. Uh, the brother came in. The brother... Uh, Ray's real-life brother is shorter than him. His older brother is shorter than him. So that made perfect sense. The older brother who's shorter is jealous of the younger brother who's taller. That just made sense. So I'm looking for a shorter guy. And then this talking tree came in the room. <laughs> and he opened his mouth. He said, everybody loves Ray. And we fell over. And that was it. That was easy. Uh, the mother, I had a very specific mother in mind. My mother. <laughs> and I saw a hundred women on both coasts and, and Doris Roberts came in and she read a scene that was right from my life that happened to me with my mother and she knocked it out of the park and that was easy once we found her after a hundred people um, the wife the hardest role in a sitcom to catch would you agree? Yes. would you agree? I'm talking to you mister oh yes, yes, yes. yes, yes I agree because <laughs> um, it can't just be Here's your sandwich, honey. You want it to be strong some some. strong and tough and vulnerable and sexy and sweet. All these things. And I'm lucky because I found that in real life, too. Yeah. I didn't marry that girl. Yes, he did. Yeah, you don't react. you got to wait for it. 
But the network, someone at the network said, we know who the wife should be. And they named the name, which I won't name. But she was a blonde, very Midwestern type of blonde beauty. And I said, oh, no, that's never going to, that it changes the whole dynamic. It actually becomes like Bridget Loves Bernie, about a blonde girl in the middle of this swarthy Italian family. That's not what the show's about. She has to be not a milk toast, blonde, plain girl. I apologize to any of you who are that. <laughs> but, but, you know, we wanted, wanted to give a little, like, like we got, right? And they were very, they, they said, you didn't hear me. This is who we want, and if you don't do it, then you don't have a show. And I said, I quit. And, and I was quitting. And my agent said, don't get excited. <laughs> why, don't you, uh, why don't you read the girl? Well, yes, you're right, uh, agent. Uh, maybe maybe I, I'll do that, so that, and maybe I'll be pleasantly surprised, and then I'll have a show. Right? So you yeah, can't be a jerk. So yes, okay. And I read with her. And she's ten times worse than, than I thought she would be for this role. She's perfectly fine, nice actress. If, you, if I told you who she was, you would know who she was. It's not important. Stop asking. <laughs> so today's the day that I'm quitting my show because I've been told you can bring your three actresses. I had three actresses that I'm bringing to network. You bring three choices. They want three choices so that they feel important. <laughs> You're going to bring three choices to the network and... And at the end of the three choices, the head of the network's going to turn to you and say, what about so-and-so? And if you don't say yes, you don't have a show. So now I'm dying because I cannot do it with so-and-so. I'm going to quit my show today. Yes, really. And I bring my three actresses. Patty Heaton is not one of them. I haven't found her yet. But I have three actresses who are fine, certainly better than so-and-so. Probably the show wouldn't be what it became if I cast one of these. But they were fine. They leave right on cue, head of the network. What about so-and-so? I say, I love her. I say, I've always loved her. I've loved her in everything she's ever been in. And uh, I met with her today, and I fell in love with her. I wanted to marry her. But then we read, and I have to tell you, it's just not what I wrote. It, 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 I don't really buy them as a couple. I think she could do it, but I also think that maybe we could do better. And he said, well, it's just an idea. <laughs> well, I quit. <laughs> yes, and two weeks later, here comes Patty Heaton, bang, reads for us, oh my God, where are you from? Bang to the network, bang, have a show. Right? So it happens. Can I tell you one more quick thing? I'll allow it. Thank you. We filmed the pilot. Goes very well. We get, they, I get a phone call from my agent. He says, congratulations, you've been picked up. You're going to the series. Yes. I said, that's fantastic. Let's uh, have a drink. He says, they just want to know who's going to run the show. I said, I, I assumed me. He says, you? You never ran anything. You, what, who are you? I said, well, I, I made the pilot. They liked the pilot enough to pick it up to series, right? He says, yeah. I said, I'll do more like that. <laughs> and he says, you don't understand. This is now a thing. This is now money. This is now that. I said, well, I'm not going to work for someone else on my own show. I'm writing about my friggin' family. Nobody knows my family better than me. So I quit. Tell him I quit. 
He says, all right, shut up. Let me make a call. I'll call you back. Okay. He calls me back. Good news. They're going to let you co-run the show with a guy who's had experience. You can co-run the show. I said, oh, if you put it that way, I quit. <laughs> because I know what will happen. The guy who had experience, let's say this guy walks in as my co-showrunner, he's going to be the boss. You're not going to question him. Look at him. <laughs> right? So I quit. Tell him I quit. And they say, he says, you're an idiot. I said, I know, but I quit. And I quit. And I hang up the phone, and my wife says, why are you sad? And I said, I quit my show today. And for three days, I lived in a world, three days, where my show is going on without me, because I'm a stubborn, stupid ass. <laughs> and it's going day one, day two, day three. You mean you let them have it? You, you had it's theirs. Started? They paid for it. I took the oh, money. <laughs> on the third day, get a phone call. Guess what? They're going to let you run the show. Why? Why? He liked how you handled that thing with so-and-so. There's the lesson. Be nice, right? Be deferential. Stick to your guns. If any kids out there are writing, here's my lesson. Always quit. (laughs) Now... I had a similar story. I wanted, I, I wanted to ask you. Now, recently, um, I'm in the process of developing a show, and I asked Phil for some advice, and this is exactly what he told me. Always quit, but stick to your guns and know what it is. So I was wondering from Norman and Steve, have you had these experiences uh, on a, kn- on a, about knowing what your show is? On the pilot episode for uh, One Day at a Time, which starred Bonnie Franklin, Valerie Bertinelli, and Mackenzie Phillips, mother and two daughters, uh, there was a line in a moment when the Mackenzie Phillips character said she was going to moon another kid. I don't know if mooning is not in the, in the current it's, vernacular, but... It's selfies know, now. But you, I'm sure you know it. And uh, they wanted the line out. And it was just a line. She just t- said she was going to moon somebody. So, uh, it... I mean, I had learned a long time before, if you give in to silly once, you're going to have to give in to it again and again. And I, I thought it was just silly. Uh, I finished the, we went for a week arguing about this. I did the five o'clock show, and, uh, and Perry Lafferty came down from upstairs to say that, the ne- that New York has said, if it's in there, they will take it out. Uh, they will cut it, but it will, it will not go on the air. So he advised me, just take it out now and make a smooth show for the 8 o'clock audience. I did not take it out. When the show went on, the, was going on, the, oh, I, when I left the, uh, uh, for the evening, when we finished putting it all together, I thought, well, they're not going to pay for it. So I told my associate, take the tapes, put them in my garage. <laughs> so he took the tapes and put them in my garage. And the next morning, as it happened, my wife and I and my kids were going to Hawaii. It was vacation time. And uh, two days later, and we went to a place, 
the only place in Hawaii I think that didn't have phones. <laughs> and, uh, but they got to me. And, and it was Fred Silverman in New York. And uh, where's the show? We got to have the show. Well, you're not, you don't own the show. I'm paying for it. No, you, you, anyway. Do we have a deal? <laughs> and they had to see the tape, so they paid for the show. Yes. And, they saw the tape. and you know, Mackenzie Phillips talked about mooning somebody, and uh, there, it was on the air when the show finally aired, and there wasn't one state that seceded from the union. <laughs> uh, Steve, have you, have you had this moment where you've had to have this Alamo draw the line in the sand moment? Yeah, I mean, well, it's interesting. I got some amazing advice early on in my career. Uh, A friend of mine had done a pilot, and he had this dynamic built up between this man and the woman and the pilot, and they said to him, you look at the the woman comes across as kind of too harsh. you got to tone her down. He said, well, it's all about the dynamic between them, and it'll balance out in the end. And they said, listen, if you want to get on the air, you're going to have to tone it down. And so he toned it down and shot the pilot, and it was dead. DOA, there was no dynamic. What, was built, what the pilot was built around was dissolved. And they called him up and said, look, uh, we watched the pilot. It's flat. There's not enough to that character. And he said, it's because you told me to tone her down. And they said, well, you shouldn't have listened. Perfect. So... Thank God, this, this, this is a guy, this, this, tor- this story was told to me my second year in the business, just talking, and I swear this has been the most important story I've gotten, you know, I've heard in my career, because from that moment on, I just got it in my head that I'm going to, I'm going to fail on my own terms. Whenever I have to, whenever there's a decision to make, the, the key is to not be a dick about it. It's just, it's, and, and I see that all the time, too. I, I think this whole, the whole f- thing that writers love to talk about is, like, what idiots executives are and the <coughs> terrible notes they get and all that stuff. And, and I do think that that happens, for sure. And I've gotten those things. But I think that that has changed to a large extent. I, I find that people are, are smarter and and nicer now and they just want to succeed they're trying to and if you put yourself in their shoes they're just trying to to you know to do their jobs and try to contribute wherever they can so the best that you can do i find is to stick to your guns but when you when you disagree when someone gives you a note that you don't agree with you say you know what i hear you uh, this is so many writers will go oh yeah 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 we'll talk about it and you could just see that they're not doing it. And I even see it. I'm like, instead, if you just say, okay, you know what? We, we heard what you said, and we talked about it at length. And it doesn't make sense because it doesn't work for the character because, but we really appreciate it. And we got the sense that, of what your note is, which is at that moment in the script, something felt wrong to you. And we don't disagree with that. And let us do our jobs and fix it. And it works. And it has worked my entire career, to, to treat them with respect. I just find if you treat them with respect, yes. you get treated with respect. If you show, I used to do this thing on Just Shoot Me, 
because you'd always have those run-throughs and then notes. And before the network executive would speak, I would say, if you don't mind, may I give my notes first? And it was always my goal to leave them nothing to say. And, and not in a disrespectful way, but in a way to say, I got it. I got it. Like, you've got to give us our chance. We just saw it for the first time, too. And we need our moment here. And, and if it's done in the right way, they can't argue. And by the way, good note can come from anywhere. Oh, by 100%. And, and the network and studio, these are the first people to see the work outside of you and you, your guys. And the show is for people, right? right? And they, at the very least, are people. So a good note can come from anywhere. And when we say we're going to take a look at that, we really mean it. We really are going to take a look at it. Yeah. But at the end of the day, what Ed Weinberger told me years ago, you remember Ed Weinberger? Very yes. Well. You know, did you ever meet Ed? Funny story? <laughs> he told me this. I tried to buy a house from him once. It was a disaster. Not so good. Was it, was it in... Every time office? we made an offer, he raised his price. Really? But anyway. That was like writing jokes with him, too. <laughs> but, so a madman, yes, but also said this. Do the show you want to do, because in the end, they're going to cancel you anyway. <laughs> That's it. That's a life lesson. We all get canceled one day. <laughs> Don't look at me. <laughs> Drop the mic. Drop the mic. <laughs> Drop the mic. Fantastic. I've, I want to sort of ask about the... Jews clip. having fun. <laughs> I want to ask about the... I just have a couple more questions, well, we and we'll get some mic. from the audience. I want to ask about sort of the flip side of this. I mean, Norman, we look at your shows, and there's such confidence in every episode. Were there times working on these shows when you doubted yourself or when the writing staff said, what are we doing? You know, it, it sounds so full of self to say no, but the fact is, we were a lot of people. I mean, this was a major collaboration, mm -hmm. and everyone was smart and everyone was able. And when we were ready to present to a, we were happy enough to present to an audience, uh, we knew we had it. Then we heard them laugh then we found that we could do some things better and we fixed them for the 8 o'clock show. But uh, by the time we got to an audience, we were confident we had something. And we were waiting for their, you know, for, for their breath. <laughs> and they, uh, as they reacted, we knew we had it. Or we had to make some changes. They were never, you know, we, ne I don't re we never had to throw away a script. Mm -hmm. We never had a moment where the reaction was so bad or, or, or not a, didn't exist and we, we could, shouldn't do it. Were there, this is sort of a, a nuts and bolts question, but once the writer went off with those very, seemingly very loose notes to write the script, was there a lot of rewriting after that by you or by the room? There was a lot of, I mean, somebody once said very smartly, nothing is written, it's rewritten. And, uh, and that's the truth. I mean, it was certainly the truth for us. 
Uh, what about you guys? Uh, have, have there been these dark nights of the soul? Have there been times in your hit series, several of them, when you say, what are we doing? Or I don't know what this is anymore. Or anything like that? It's hard at the beginning. Mm-hmm. You're trying to find what the show is, where, the, where, it, where it sings, you know, where, where they score, where the actors you have, what their strengths are, mm-hmm. what their weaknesses are. You find a weakness, well, we don't write that anymore, right? So... And, and you're finding the strengths of yourself, of your writer's room, finding the show. That's the, the birthing process. That's the hard part. My favorite episodes, when I look back on my career now, my very favorite episodes are the ones where we took the biggest chances. Uh, I didn't, where we what? Where we took the biggest chances. The, the episodes were that were scary at the time. You know, the ones, I mean, and for various reasons. For example? I mean... I don't expect anyone to remember this, but like we did a, an episode on, on Just Shoot Me a million years ago called um, Slow Donnie. And, and, and it was a, just a bizarre concept, and it was kind of scary at the time. It, the, the, the story very quickly was that Elliot's brother had been in, a, in an accident where he fell out of a tree at some point in his life, and he was disabled, and he was mentally disabled. And then, um, consequently, he lived at home, and his mother waited on him and everything, and then he started hitting on Maya a little bit. And then the big act break, played by David Cross, was when he revealed that he's not really disabled. (laughs) And it was all an act. And it sounds very inappropriate now and everything, but it was... And it was in the room. There were Half the people in the room said, you cannot do this episode. I kept thinking, you know, he's not the... It's, yeah, it's wrong. I mean, it's, it is wrong. Like the, the concept of what he's doing is wrong, but that doesn't mean that doing the episode is wrong in that particular case. It means as long as we come down on the side that he's wrong, it's, it's okay. And, and then, you know, that plays, that's played out, you know, over, you know, over the years in various other episodes or in just trying to do something different with the form. You know, we did this one that took place on a computer screen last year, um, and, and, and there are people, or there's a moment, you know, we had a gigantic debate in, in our room about whether or not Claire should buy condoms, a big box of condoms for her daughter to take to college. And the filthiest people in the room were like, she can't do that, that's, you know. And I'm like, I have heard you talk about masturbating, you know, to this and that. And, 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 and you're now, like, and it just made so much sense for me to me, to, for that, you know, to, to take place, and 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 so those those moments, the ones that are like a little bit edgy, or you know, whatever it is, for whatever reason, those are the ones that stick with you. Like, oh, I'm glad we did that. So I like, I like, I like those moments. Who? I, I'm just going to ask you guys one more question. I'm just going to throw this out there to whomever wants to answer it, Norman. And <laughs> who are some of the funniest? people you have worked with um, writers especially but really any of the funny people you've worked it with and, and how did they influence you or how did they leave an impression on you I did a film with uh, uh, The Night They Raided Missies with Bert Lahr and he was uh, in this word I, re- I reserve for very very few people in a century maybe you don't have more than a couple of clowns and he was, he was a clown. Uh, and, you know, he could, he could walk into a room and tell you your mother passed and, and make you laugh. 
I might. Uh, <laughs> Kidding, Mom. Uh, Carol, when he, uh, Carol O'Connor, when he slipped into Archie. Killer. Oh, killer. I mean, he was so funny. So it's funny. funny. I mean, it's and none of us, right? None of us wrote as well. For, he hated most scripts. We had a most difficult time before he would pass some through some. You know, I don't know. It was mystical, but he passed through some moment after a lot of fighting, and he'd become the character. And when he was the character, nobody could write the words as funny as he could speak them. And so it was, uh, there was so much magic in all of that. Uh, but nobody made me laugh harder. And B. Arthur, she, there were places in my body I didn't know I had. <laughs> because I was laughing there. <laughs> Besides the people, and I want to come back to this for a second, but it makes me think of this. Besides the people, were there characters that you particularly loved writing over the years? Were there characters that we particularly loved? That you personally particularly... You know, I am we. Yes. (laughs) Because that was a great giant collaboration. Yeah. Uh, I mean, writing for B. Arthur as Maud was the delight of delights. When we did... uh, when the Jeffersons moved next door to the bunkers, uh, I had cast uh, Mrs. Jefferson and, and, and uh, Michael was there all the time, the friend, uh, and they, had, they were the ones who moved next door. Uh, I didn't have the father, but I was so confident I'd have the father. They moved in and we did a story, we did a story, and then a script had to deliver a senior male. And I didn't have, hadn't cast a father, hadn't thought about Sherman. Hemsley had not come in there. And uh, so he had a brother. We cast a brother. And we brought an actor in from San Francisco. He played the brother, and he did very well. And it was months before uh, I remembered, or Jane Murray, who was the casting woman, uh, remembered, or somebody else, but somebody remembered Sherman Hemsley in a show called, uh, and I just lost the name of that, uh, Pearly. Thank you. And our show, what's her name again? <laughs> uh, uh, See how it works. Caught your thing. And then we had uh, Sherman, we had George Jefferson. Uh, Phil, funny people you have worked with. Wow. The whole cast was really funny. They were really fun. We loved writing for Peter Boyle because the, you know, the filter was off. He could say anything. We, we loved that, that we could get away with these really mean <laughs> <laughs> jokes at the wife's expense. It's just, I love it. <laughs> were there any writers that you worked with over the years that just cracked you up? Uh, do you have this that, that in the room there's like a room monkey? <laughs> you know, I used to be the room monkey, the, the person who seemed not to care about the work at all. <laughs> and and uh, it's very necessary occupation because you need the spirit of fun for funny to come from. It's like warming up the car. You know, and it's it's just making fun. And Lou Schneider, if you know Lou, he is room monkey wherever he is. Uh, uh, 
probably most in the bedroom, I'm guessing. But, but he's, he's, uh, he's absolutely... Thank you, Norman. Uh, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a pleasure to work. And we had really... What a, there's no greater joy in life than working with people for a long time that become your family, that become more than friends, that become your, your, your war buddies in a way, that in a, close in a way. You know, you spend nine years on a show with people in the same room, in the veal pen, we called it, and uh, you become close. And, and you're laughing and, and sometimes crying with these brothers in arms and, and sisters in arms. And, and you're, you're just... You're thrilled. There's no. I recommend this job to to get paid to laugh and to get eat paid to and, laugh and, and and eat craft service. I was going to say, uh, <laughs> and to make other people laugh. Hopefully, that there's no greater joy than that. Really. No, I mean I've I've had the great great pleasure of working with such a you know big group of of incredibly talented people through the years. Um, I mean, it's you couldn't do this job. You can't do a, a, an ongoing show uh, without a, a, a ridiculously talented team. And I, I look around every day still, and I'm, I am just amazed that, that, that somewhere you need a fix. You need a joke. You need this moment to work, and you are like, I can't, I don't, do not have this. And there's always somebody in the room who's got it. Um, you know, and it's finding the right chemistry. It's finding the different players. It is, it is like building a sports team. You know, you need somebody at every different position. You need people who are really good at story. You need people who are going to be the mature ones and keep the rooms going when you're when you leave. You need the people who are going to just come with that out of the crazy left field pitch. But I have had the great pleasure of of spending a career with with you know, I mean just people that I've worked with over and over and over again. I don't even want, I'm afraid to start naming names because I will leave somebody out and feel terrible. But so, you know, I wouldn't, just Modern Family is the result of, of about, over now over the years, rough, roughly 20 or so writers who just gave it their all. And, you know, Just Shoot Me, for me at least, was the same. And, and it wouldn't be, you know, Frazier is a master class in, you know, people who just wrote well. And, and, and to be in that environment, it, it raises your game. And when you see people around you who will not accept a hacky joke and will ridicule you and make you feel ridiculous for even pitching that hacky joke, that hacky joke gets worked out of your system. And, and suddenly you're a better writer uh, because of the people that you spend 8, 10, 12, sometimes 18 hours a day with, hopefully not, but that's, that's the beauty of that system. And then at the end of the day, this big group of people, you know, who are your friends and who you know way too much about, uh, together you've built something that you can all be proud of. And that's an incredible, incredible experience. But we would, I would be zero you know, without them. All right, let's get some questions from you guys. Uh, Chris, can you bring the house lights up a little bit, please? I'm going to come down there. Is there anybody out there? No, it's blind. There may not be anyone here. Oh, okay. I still can't see you. Turn it up a little brighter. A little more. <laughs> Thank you. All right, who has a question? I'm going to come down here like Donahue. I Am I going to get a lot of feedback from this, by the way? Should be all right. Well, let's find out. Hi, how's it going? Former writer's panelist right here. Yes, stand up, please. Have you condensed your question to one sentence? I think 
think so. All right, let's try it. All right, uh, I guess particularly Phil and Steve, uh, you're known for having uh, fairly humane hours for your writing teams. Mm -hmm. uh, what are some of the key tactics you guys have tried to employ to keep those hours more humane than some of the other writer rooms? Uh, uh, being prepared, use, utilizing your, your pre-production time, which I've been on shows where it's completely wasted, but if you even use the hiatus, yes, you, you, you can't do this the first year. You're just trying to keep up with the, with the steamroller, right? That's the, the boulder that's rolling down the hill. And, but before we left for the three-month hiatus, is it? Two months? Mm -hmm. We wouldn't leave. We'd stay an extra two weeks and break stories for the next season. Now, nobody wants to do this. You're exhausted. But it really pays off in that the, these two weeks are going to be spent and each of us, or the ten writers, are each going to have a story that's been approved and you're now going to go and you have one more job to do Why on your hiatus. Why you break ten stories in two weeks? Well, we start, we start, we backtrack through your, because we're ahead earlier, you can start working and on that before the end of the season. Because <laughs> I'm lying, yes. Uh, no, no, no. I, the, I'm saying the first season was, the, was very hard. But we stayed two weeks, we broke stories, and then we had full outlines, and now on your hiatus, in the, in the two months that you have left of your hiatus, you're going to write that script. That does not sound like a hiatus. It's not fun. <laughs> <laughs> but if the story is broken, if you already have the outline, you yeah. can write a script, a 40-page sitcom script in, in five days maximum, I think. And, and then the rest of that hiatus, yes, you didn't have a full hiatus, but you had weeks off. Now, what does that do for you? You come in at the beginning of pre-production. You still have two months before, I think, the actors come, right? Mm -hmm. You have ten scripts. Now you're going to spend that pre-production time not thinking of stories, but tabling those scripts, making them as good as they can be, rewriting them, and still thinking of the next stories. So when production starts... I know I have 10 full scripts and I have the rest of the season, the stories. And we go home every night, 5 or 6 o'clock. Yes. Yes. By the way, going home is part of the job for, for our show. If you work for me, go home, have dinner, get in a fight with your wife, come back in and tell me about it. You can't, you can't write about real life unless you have one. <laughs> So that's, that's the... Yeah. It's in my book. True. <laughs> You're lucky you're funny. How Life Becomes a Sitcom. It's, a, it's great. Pick it up. But there's another question over here. What about yes. Steve? You had an answer. The, the only, only thing I'll add is that we, we, we do not have more than seven people doing anything. Mm -hmm. uh, so we might have a big... We have a big staff now. We have 14 people. So it's, it should be at least a three-ring circus if not more. So keep people working efficiently. You know, it's, the more people you add to it, the longer it takes. And then you can get, you know, have multiple rooms going, things going on at all the time, and, and you can live a really civilized life. The one lesson I learned with Modern Family is when we, we did multicams, we would do rewrites every single day. Watch a run-through, do a rewrite. Watch a run-through, do a rewrite. Modern Family is get a draft, do a rewrite, table it, do one more rewrite, shoot it. Done. It's hard to argue that it's not as good as, you know, the, the for me at least, on the, the multicams I was doing. So something about it, maybe we were over 
thinking it. Maybe we weren't letting the actors just dig in and do the material as written. Maybe we were taking a lot of uh, lateral moves uh, rather than really making it better. Yeah, and at a certain point, you should get to the point where before the script goes to the stage, before the actors read it out loud on table reading day, you know if it works or not. You should get to that point. You think you do. Yeah. <laughs> Life throws you a curve, but yeah. you're better off. Yeah. Right here. Oh, excuse me. Uh, what are some of the qualities you gentlemen look for in directors? What was the question? What do you look for in a director? Somebody who agrees with you. <laughs> you know, in the, in the multicam world, the showrunner is the director, meaning if it was a play, you, you, tell, you, you communicate with the actors how and, how, and you, you even block them as if it was for theater. And the director of a multicam sitcom is more like a cinematographer, a director of photography in that world. I know it's somewhat different in, in yeah, yours, maybe? I, yeah, a little bit more. Um, I think what we look for most of what we prize is, is just one, somebody who sets a good tone on set, because either I'm on set or Christopher Lloyd is on set overseeing everything, so, and we, and we have the same DP, so it's going through that filter anyway. Um, so if somebody can just be setting a good tone, and then maybe what you pray for is adding a little something, finding some comedy in a, in, in, in a physical moment. Or just not hurting. <laughs> Was there someone over here? Yeah, let's go back here. Santa. Uh, especially early on in the series, uh, for everyone, uh, have, have you ever decided, you know, this regular character is not funny enough and how can we make them funnier long term? Norman? I, I'm sorry, I missed it. Uh, do you ever, uh, were you ever faced with a character that wasn't funny enough and you had to make a decision, how do you make this character funnier in the long term? Was that right? Yeah. Does that ever work? I'm, I'm serious. It's, it's, I mean, it's a good question because does it ever work? You find yourself shying away from that character rather than trying to make him something well, yeah, he's not. Right? I, I think you've, you learned you made a mistake. Yes. Uh, you, re- if, you ever recast? If you've, uh, and this has happened, if, you, if you've seen enough actors, oh, by the time you've seen a half a dozen actors, you have to know whether you've got a character that you're still looking to, or whether there's something wrong with the character. Uh, for the most part, I don't remember that happening. By the time I wanted an actor, I, w- I was reading actors. Well, for smaller roles it happened, but not for the major roles. For the major roles, you waited for the gift of the person who came in and sat down and read it and didn't give you what you expected because I could write Archie Bunker for t- 30 years and not expect what Carol O'Connor brought because his sound, his face, his being, uh, plus what the words I had written made the character. I will say, I will say, I will take the hit most of the time in those situations, where typically it's my fault. It's, 
I didn't do a good enough job making that character specific enough that I knew that that wasn't the right actor or that that actor had something to play. That, you know, that it was maybe, a, oh, we'll find it. It's the sassy bartender and we'll find what that is and how she relates to everybody else on the set. And, by the, and then you begin to realize that you just didn't do the work. You didn't fully flesh out the dynamics between that character and the other characters because if you really had, you might say either A, we don't need that character, or B, that character should be something else because then they could go toe-to-toe with that person and have, be on, you know, whatever the thing that changes it. So the more specific you are in designing the character, the less of a chance you'll have of it being, you know, a, a long-term, you know, a casting issue or whatever. I mean, you know, occasionally you go, oh boy, that's not what we had in mind, and you make a quick fix. But when you're really struggling in the long term of what is this character going to do? What is this character? doesn't seem to ever fit. You did something wrong in the designing of the show, I find. Right here. Sorry. Hi. All of you are responsible for creating very nuanced, flawed, incredible female characters and also including women in your rooms. And I was wondering what advice you would have for men who passively exclude women from the worlds they create and from the rooms that they put together? I would kind of expand that question um, to ask you, uh, these are all good, very, those are very good points. Uh, what does make for a good writer's room for you? What ingredients are you looking for? What members of the team are you looking for? I don't care if you're black, white, female, Chinese, as long as you write like an old Jew. <laughs> oh my God. Like Bernard Shaw. <laughs> Anyone else have an answer? <laughs> I mean, I you, you, me, meeting, meeting, guy, meeting men and women who are writers, uh, it isn't until they've written something. Either you've read it in advance of meeting with them, or they've gone home and come back with something. But you don't know some... I mean, I've, they're some of the most sullen people I've known have been brilliant writers. So you <laughs> don't know looking at a person or just listening to them whether that person can write funny until you've read it. But as I said I, before, I be- really believe that you need different kinds of people. I, I, I'm told Lord Michaels has this formula that he utilizes, which is half the people are these really funny sort of Midwest people who went to state schools in the Midwest, and the other half are from Harvard. <laughs> and the combination of those two groups, kind of that, that, the collision of those two groups is what he feels is make you know drives that show to be relevant and push pushes people farther. I, I think there's something to that 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 he you know you know you need this chemistry to happen in the room the same way you do on screen. And and what we're looking for, to Phil's point, is funny, just funny, smart, funny, different kinds of funny, thoughtful funny, for some just. Balls out funny for others, 
but it, it doesn't matter. It does not matter who you are. As long as you're pleasant and somebody that we would want to spend every day with. That's no small thing. That is huge. And I, I, and you got and, on the door. You got on the door on your script. Now, are you an axe murderer? <laughs> do you have little quirks that will make us all be crazy? You know, because you do spend so many hours in a small room with these people that it just has to. If the chemistry's off, it's it can throw off a whole room. One person could drive a whole room crazy and make everybody tighten up and not do their best work. So. If you're pleasant and you're funny and you write a good script, you're going to get a job. But the good script comes first. We'll do anything for a yeah. good script that we don't have yeah. to work very hard on. Yeah. We'll take almost any behavior. <laughs> but I don't know, like, the... the, the yeah. Well, almost. Mm. Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, I think we have time for maybe one more question. Young lady, tell us, what, tell us your name. Oh, I am a good friend of Norman's. Norman? Norman Lear. Yes. I'm walking close. I am a good friend here. Yes, you do, darling. Look over here. Help me up. You better let me fall either. She's coming up. I'm coming up and I'm moving on up. Wow. Hello, darling. Sinead Dubois? Yes! Oh, wow, royalty. (laughs) Wow. How about that? This is very cool. Do you remember Walona on the Jeffersons? On the good times. On the good times. Oh, my God. Wow. You're in my life. Oh, sit down. I have a funny story. Come have a, come have a seat over here. I want to talk to you. Oh, do you? I do. Can you? Am I on? Hello, everybody. Tell, tell these people why they know you. Hi, everybody. You know who I am? Yes. What's my name? Walona Woods of Good Times. Yeah. I, I'm so happy to be on this stage with my baby. This is Norman, my baby. You don't know this. But let me tell you a funny story, real quick. You should go. <laughs> oh, you are so cute. Oh, my God. And you are so funny, my <laughs> I really don't know which of us feels worse. (laughs) Tell tell your story and tell us how it was working with Norman. I got that on the wedding night, too. (laughs) Bring me some water. Oh, listen. I don't want to hear from her anymore, do you? (laughs) You know you're my hero, too. Listen, this has been 40 years of love between Norman and I. But I want the funny part of the story of this is, of course, being in good times changed my life in many, many ways. But <laughs> I'll never forget, and Norman doesn't know that I realized this, but it was in November I said to Norman, 1974, by the way, I said, Norman, I need some more to do. He said, you got a job. And I said, but I want something else to do. He said, what can you do? I said, I can do anything. He said, oh, Really? He has a cap on. He used to have a cap right back here. And he looked at you and he kind of smiled. You know, like, mm hmm. I said, I can do a lot. He said, What can you do? I said, I can write. He said, Oh, you can. I said, Listen, when you do another show, let me know and I can write the music. He said, Oh. <laughs> so you're a writer too? I said, Yeah. He said, Uh huh. I said, What's it about? He said, <clears throat> And he chuckled. He said, A man with some cleaners. 
I said, okay, I'll bring it in next week when I come after the holidays. He said, oh, okay, and he laughed. He walked away. I said, he thinks I'm out of my mind. Here I am, just got to California in a sense saying, I want to write a song, a theme song. I've never written a theme song, but I said, I can do it. He gave me the shot. He said, okay, bring it in. I brought it in, and then you got moving on up. Can wow. you believe that? Yes. You know that? You know wow. that? I tell you. That's my favorite song. I mean, Bologna is wonderful. But when I sang that song, I'm going to sing it to you in a minute. But when I, sang, when I sang that song, it was like, can you believe he let me try? I brought it in. It was all gone. It was done. I never knew Sherman. It was like, I never knew who I was writing for. But he said, he gave me a chance. What I'm trying to say is this. I came in and said, hi, y'all, bye, y'all. You said it. What you're trying to say, you said it. <laughs> when I said that, I gave you a chance. Oh. He gave me a chance to say it, and I said it. <laughs> so, well, we're moving on up, moving on up to the east side. We're moving on up to a deluxe apartment in the sky. Yes, we're moving on up, moving on up to the east side. moving on up. Uh, we finally got a piece of the pie. <laughs> Fish don't fry in the kitchen. Uh, beans don't burn on the grill. Took a whole lot of trying just to get up that hill. Now we up in the big league. Get nocturne at that. Long as we live, it's you and me, honey. There ain't nothing wrong with that. Well, here we're moving on up, moving on up to the east side. I'm moving on up to a deluxe apartment in the sky. Yes, we're moving on up, moving on up to the east side. Moving on up, we finally got a piece of Janae Dubois, everybody. Thank you. Stick around. Stay here. Wow. Stay here. We're going to do some stuff. Stay here for a minute. Thank you. Wow. Now, please now continue you clapping go. for all of our panelists. Steve Levitan, Phil Rosenthal, Norman Lear. You stay for a minute? You sign this one? Thank you all for coming. Please continue clapping for everyone here at Largo at Los Angeles. Everyone at 826 LA. Now leaving nerdist.com.